Our topic for tonight is the Bible's longest, most amazing prophecy. Tonight, I begin by bringing to you a court summons. You have a case pending in court. Did you know that? Let me read it for you, with you, from the Bible. You can mark this in your notes. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. You have a case pending before the highest court of the universe, the judgment bar of Christ. How many of us have a case? All. The Bible says all. Another text, Romans 14, 12. Put that in your notes tonight. It says, so then, how many? Every Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. You're going to have to give an account of what you've done, what you've said in your life, and the one you must give an account to is... God. For the time is come, says Peter, for the time is come that the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So the Bible says the time is come, and we're going to find out when the time came tonight. As we study the longest prophecy in the Bible, and that text, if you're taking notes, was 1 Peter 4, 17. The Bible reveals to us that someday God is going to hand down an irrevocable sentence upon every person. Let's read that from Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. Revelation 2-2, verse 1-1, it says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous Still, and he that is holy, let him be holy. Still, God passes sentence upon everyone. And after that verdict has been pronounced, then what? Then verse 12, the very next verse, Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. When Jesus comes back, he brings a reward for every person based on that person's works. Therefore, there must be a judgment before he comes back to determine what rewards to bring every person. And that is why in Revelation you read about a message that goes to the whole world, that we're living in the time of the judgment. Let's read that message from Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Put it in your notes tonight. It says, John says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. So the message that goes to the whole world before Christ comes back is that the hour of God's judgment is come. Not something that it will come, but it is come. It has arrived. The questions we want to answer tonight are when did the judgment begin and where is the judgment taking place? Well, to answer that, son, we need to leave the book of Revelation and go to another great prophetic book. What book? Daniel. The book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we see where the judgment's happening, and we will also learn when it began. 
as we study the longest prophecy in the Bible. Let's begin here in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, I beheld, Daniel says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. More correctly, it would say they were set down like you would set a seat for a dignitary. And the Ancient of Days did sit, that's God the Father, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set. And the books were opened. So Daniel, he looks up into heaven. He sees God the Father seated there in flaming majesty. He sees all these thousands times ten thousands of angels. And he says the judgment was set. And the books were opened. What are those books that are open, son? The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment. With every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So God has an accurate record of all our works in heaven, whether they are good or evil. That must be the books. You might be hiding something from your husband or from your wife or from your boss, but you cannot hide from God. Uh, you might have heard the story. They were having a movie and a cinema like this. The lights were off, and it was a full hall for the movie. And halfway through the movie, they turned on the lights, they shut off the movie, and they made this announcement over the intercom. They said, if anybody is here with another man's wife, please leave immediately out the back door because her husband just came in the front door. He says, he's, with a gun, he says, he's going to kill you both. Seventeen couples got up and ran out the back door. Well, the Bible says God is going to bring every work into judgment. You cannot hide anything from God. There's someone else there in this heavenly scene, and we want to notice him. This is from Daniel 7, verse 13. Add that to your notes. It says, Daniel 7, 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like unto the Son of Man. Who would that be? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. One like unto the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Son, what is Jesus' function there in this heavenly judgment? Well, he has several functions. Jesus is, number one, our lawyer, but he's also our judge. John 5, says, all judgment is committed unto the Son. And then Jesus is also our, well, he should be, our friend, and he's also our Savior. Now, if you think about it this way, if you have to go to court for a crime and your lawyer, he's also your judge, he's also your best friend, and he already paid for your crime, do you have to fear the judgment? No, oh. you can look forward to the judgment because you know you will be justified. Right. That's Jesus. So you see where the judgment's happening, right? The ha judgment is taking place in heaven. God the Father is the presiding judge. Jesus is the acting judge and our lawyer. We also have all the angels, the witnesses. They've seen everything we've done. They've heard everything we've said. 
So we see the judgment is taking place in heaven. We don't go there in person. Jesus represents us there. That's where it's happening. So we answered the first question, where the judgment is happening. Let's go now to the second question, and that is, when does the judgment begin? And that is the question that relates to the Bible's longest, most amazing prophecy. For an answer to this question, we're going to go to Daniel 8, verse 14, if you're taking notes. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, where the Bible says, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. You say, well, what does the cleansing of the sanctuary have to do with the judgment? Well, son, to answer that, we need to get an overview of the sanctuary and its services. And this is only going to be a brief overview. We don't have time in our study tonight to look at all the aspects of the sanctuary, its symbols, symbolisms. This will just be a brief overview. The Bible reveals to us that there was an earthly sanctuary. And there is right now a heavenly sanctuary. You can read about the sanctuaries in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 9. When God brought his people out of Egyptian bondage, he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. You can read that in Exodus 25, verse 8. And then God told Moses that they were to make this sanctuary according to the pattern that God had shown Moses in the mountain. You can read that in Exodus 25, verse 9 and verse 40. The earthly sanctuary was a miniature type or replica of the vast, glorious, heavenly sanctuary. Now, there is an important point about the sanctuary that we'd like if you could remember tonight. This is one of the most important points about the sanctuary. The sanctuary and its services were God's illustration of the plan of salvation. If I say, let me illustrate something... You know that I will use something you are familiar with to explain something you are not familiar with. The sanctuary and its services are God's illustration of the plan of salvation. Every symbol in the sanctuary, all the furniture, the services, everything pointed forward to Jesus and how God would deal with the problem of sin. In the earthly sanctuary, the sanctuary was a tent-like structure, you can see in the painting here, enclosed in a courtyard. Here we have a diagram of that sanctuary. And you notice that outside the sanctuary in the courtyard, we have, first of all, what was called the altar of sacrifice. This is where the animals died for sin, symbolizing how Jesus came and died outside of heaven. The animals died outside of the sanctuary. Then the next piece is the laver. This is where the priests would wash before going into the sanctuary building. The sanctuary itself had two rooms. The first room was called the holy place. The second room called the most holy place. And you'll see that in the first room there were three pieces of furniture. The seven-branched candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense... And then separating the two rooms was this veil that Hebrew tradition tells us was about 10 centimeters thick to veil the tremendous glory of God, which was in the most holy place. In the most holy place, there was one piece of furniture. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And here you have a cutaway drawing of the sanctuary. You can see there the holy place, and then the veil, and then there was the most holy place. 
And of course, in the holy place, you have those three pieces of furniture, which represent? All of those things represent Jesus. He is the bread of life, John chapter 6. He is the light of the world, John chapter 8. And the incense of his perfect life of righteousness ascends up before God, making our prayers acceptable before God. And then in the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. It was a golden box covered with a solid gold lid called the mercy seat. <clears throat> On that lid were two angels, the cherubim, symbolic of the angelic hosts in heaven that are looking on the plan of salvation. In between the two angels, you can see the Shekinah glory. This is the visible manifestation of God's presence on earth. The ark was a symbol of God's throne in heaven. And inside the ark, you can see in the cutaway here, what is inside this gold box? Ten the Ten Commandments, God's law. Of course, God's law is the foundation of His government in heaven and on earth. In the earthly sanctuary, there were two services. There was the daily service, which took place every day in the courtyard and then in the holy place. And then there was the yearly service, which took place once a year in the most holy place. There, so there was a two-phase ministry in the earthly sanctuary. That means there will be a two-phase ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Daily service, yearly service. In the daily service, when someone sinned, they had to bring a sacrifice, usually a lamb. They would bring it there to the courtyard, into the courtyard. They would confess their sin on the head of that lamb, and then they had to kill the lamb. The lamb represented who? was a symbol of Jesus who would one day die for our sins. It was our sins that caused his death, cost his life. And then the priest, he would pour out most of the blood right there at the altar of burnt offerings, but he would take a little bit of blood into the sanctuary, into the holy place, and he would sprinkle it there right before the veil. And what was right beyond the veil? The ark. Was the ark. And the ark contained the Ten Commandments. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. And this sprinkling of blood there before the veil was to signify that because of the shed blood, sin could be forgiven. The Bible says without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins. This happened every day in the daily service. The record of sin, forgiven sin, was carried into the sanctuary and sprinkled there before the veil. The sinner had been forgiven. But a record of that forgiveness, that forgiven sin, was put into the sanctuary in the sprinkled blood. Now remember, this is all symbolizing how God is dealing with the problem of sin. How God is working out our salvation. Now every day in the Old Testament, animals died because of two facts about sin. Number one, sin brings death. Bible tells us in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That brings us to number two. The second fact symbolized every day in the Old Testament sanctuary service, number two, no sinner had to die because the substitute had been provided. The substitute was what? Was the animal, the lamb, which symbolized 
Jesus, John 1, 29, John the Baptist said, referring to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. So those lambs symbolize Jesus who would one day come and die, spill his blood to save us. Now every day the record of this forgiven sin was going into the sanctuary. And so you could see that there had to be eventually a cleansing of the sanctuary. And that took place in the yearly service. Once a year, the cleansing of the sanctuary took place. What was it that was cleansed from the sanctuary? Well, son, it was the record of that forgiven sin that had gone all year long into the sanctuary. That record was cleansed out on the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary. On that day, the high priest would go into the most holy place once a year, and only the high priest could do this. He would go into the most holy place, into the presence of God. Of course, he wanted, he had to have, make sure that he had no sin in his life. It was only after careful examination of himself before he would go in there. Because if he had sin in his life, what would happen? Die. He would die there in the presence of God. So he would go into the most holy place with the blood of a sacrifice... And he would sprinkle the blood right on the mercy seat. What was beneath the mercy seat? Law. The Ten Commandments, God's law, which had been broken all year by the sins of Israel. This was to make atonement for the sins of Israel that had been carried in, the record of that sin been carried in all year and sprinkled there in the blood. The services of that day were called the cleansing of the sanctuary also the Day of Atonement, and also the Day of Judgment. So now we can see how the cleansing of the sanctuary is synonymous with the Day of Judgment. Ten days before the Day of Judgment, they would blow silver trumpets to announce to Israel that the Day of Judgment was approaching. What do you think the Hebrews did during that ten-day period? If you knew you had 10 days left to live, how would you spend the next 10 days? I think we would search our hearts. We would want to make sure that everything was right between us and one another and us and God. And that's exactly what the Hebrews did during that 10-day period leading up to the Day of Atonement. Because you see, when the sun went down on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment for the Hebrews then the destiny of every Jew was fixed for the coming year. Any Jew that had unconfessed sin in his life, he was cut off from the camp of Israel, cut off from salvation. And, of course, this was to symbolize the fact that at end time there would be a great day of judgment in which those who, who were ready, they would be saved, and those who weren't ready, they would be cut off from God's people. Every person has a case pending. The last day of the Hebrew calendar is the Day of Atonement, Day of Judgment, Yom Kippur, still the most solemn day in the Jewish year, symbolizing? Symbolizing the great day of judgment at the end of time. When the destiny of every person will be fixed, not for the coming year, but for all eternity. So there's the record that's cleansed out. What was cleansed on the Day of Atonement? Record. The record of those forgiven sins that had gone into the sanctuary all year long. That was in the earthly sanctuary. Now, son, 
Is there a record in the heavenly sanctuary? Well, yes, there is, Father. Let's go read that from Daniel 7, verse 10, where it says the judgment was set and the books were opened. And we read also from Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God shall bring every work into into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Yes, we are saved by grace, but we will be judged by our works. Heaven's going to view our life to see if indeed God's grace has been working in our lives. If you'd like to read about the services on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Judgment, then put in your notes Leviticus 16. That describes all that happened on that special day. And something we might also review tonight is how the sin is transferred. First, the sinner would bring his sacrifice to the sanctuary. He would confess his sin on the substitute. The substitute died in his place. The blood of the substitute was carried into the sanctuary. So first, notice, starts with the sinner. Then it's transferred to the substitute. Then it's transferred into the sanctuary. On the Day of Atonement, it's brought back out and put on the scapegoat. You may know, some of you who studied the sanctuary, that there were two goats used on the Day of Atonement. There was the Lord's goat. That's the one who died. Its blood was spilled to make the atonement. And then there was the scapegoat. The scapegoat did not die. The scapegoat eventually received all that sin. The high priest would come back out. After making the atonement, he'd put all the sins of Israel on the head of the scapegoat, and the scapegoat would be led out to die alone. The scapegoat represents the one that's responsible for sin. Who paid the penalty for sin? Jesus. But is Jesus responsible for tempting you to sin? Not at all. Who is responsible for sin? It's the devil. Don't, don't miss this. The scapegoat is not the one who dies. There's no blood shed. The Lord, Jesus, pays the penalty for our sins, but he's not responsible for our sins. So in the sanctuary, we see that God is someday going to hold the devil responsible for all the sins that he's tempted us to commit. Don't you think that's fair? That was symbolized on the Day of Atonement. Now, that was just a brief overview. There's a lot more we could learn from the sanctuary, but we don't have time for tonight. However, we have learned this. We learned that the cleansing of the sanctuary is the same thing as the day of judgment. So when we read in Daniel 8, 14, unto, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, that simply means then shall the judgment take place. Then shall the judgment begin. Well, that brings us to two more questions. When? When does this 2,300-day period, when does it begin? When does it end? And the second question is, which sanctuary is this referring to, the earthly or the heavenly? Well, God revealed all of these things to Daniel in a dream. But Daniel was not able to understand the dream. Let's notice that from Daniel 8, verses 16 and 17. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Gabriel was the angel. 
Then reading on, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. So, son, did God want Daniel to understand this? Apparently so. Does he want us to understand? Yes. Let's begin marking down facts about this vision. Fact number one, this vision applies to the time of the end. Brings you all the way down to the time of the end. That's our first fact. Since that is true, which sanctuary would it be referring to? Earthly or heavenly? Have to be the heavenly. Well, it couldn't refer to the earthly sanctuary because the earthly sanctuary was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. It never was rebuilt and it probably never will be rebuilt. So it would have to apply number two to the heavenly sanctuary. That's fact number two about this 2,300-day vision. Since the earthly sanctuary is no more, and since this vision brings us all the way down to the time of the end, this would have to apply to the heavenly sanctuary. And then fact number three, time is symbolic. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. If that was literal time, that would be a little bit more than six years, about 6.3 years. Would 6.3 years bring us from Daniel's day all the way to the end of time? Not at all. No. So we know that just like with the beasts and other things, time is symbolic. We already learned that a day in prophecy represents what? Day represents a year. We saw that Numbers 14.34, Ezekiel 4.6. God says, I've given you each day for a year. Genesis 29.27. When you're studying prophecy, in prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. So what do we have, son? We have 2,300 days. That would be? 2,300 years. There is the Bible's longest, most amazing prophecy. Now, about this time, Daniel was getting confused. In fact, the Bible tells us in Daniel 8, 27, and I, Daniel, fainted. Daniel was trying so hard to understand everything, he fainted. Some of you, you're thinking, oh, this is kind of a complicated topic tonight. I'm not sure I understand everything. Well, don't feel bad. Daniel didn't either. And Daniel was trying so hard to understand, he fainted. Uh, let me look around and see if anybody's fainted here tonight. I know some of you fall asleep. But these, yeah, I know these chairs are so comfortable, it's easy to fall asleep in. We might think you fainted, but you're probably just sleeping. Daniel says he fainted. I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision. But none understood it. Daniel 8 ends with Daniel getting sick and fainting. Daniel 9 begins with Daniel's earnest prayer to understand the vision. And that really is a lesson for us. Bible prophecy can only be rightly understood by much earnest prayer. And so we're going to do something unique tonight. We're going to stop right in the middle of our presentation and we're going to have a prayer that God help us to understand this longest prophecy, just like he helped Daniel to understand. Don't you think that would be good to do? So we're going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to stand for prayer. If you felt like falling asleep, this might revive you a little bit. 
And we're going to pray that God help us to understand just like he helped Daniel understand. Let's bow our heads as we stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we pause right in the middle of our study to ask that you help us to understand this longest prophecy of the Bible. Just as you made Daniel understand, we pray you would make us understand. And <clears throat> we ask as presenters for special wisdom to present this clearly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. In answer to Daniel's prayer, God sent the angel Gabriel back down to Daniel to explain to him this longest prophecy, the 2,300-day vision. And the angel began by explaining to Daniel that this 2,300 years would be divided into two parts. The first part, 490 for the Jews, and the last part, 1,810 for the Gentiles. 490 plus 1,810 is the total 2,300 years. Let's begin with this first part, the part that's for the Jews, the 490 years. We're going to read from Daniel 9, verse 24. This is a bit of review of what we studied when we talked about the Omega. Daniel 9, 24. Son, what's it say? Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So the Bible says 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who are Daniel's people? That would be the Jews, they the were Hebrews. The Hebrews, the Jews. 70 weeks are determined. What does the word determined there mean, Father? Determined actually means cut off of or separated off from. What could we cut off these 70 weeks from? The only prophecy in the context here that we could cut them off of would be the 2,300-year prophecy. So 70 weeks or 490 years for the Jews would be cut off for Daniel's people. 40, 490 years, that's the 70 weeks. Let's do the math. You didn't know you came to math class tonight, huh? 70 times 7 is 490. 490. 490 days, oops, let me back up here, 490 days or years. 490 years for Daniel's people, which were the Jews. And that, of course, leaves us with the question, when does the 490 years, when does the 2,300 years start? What would be the starting date for the prophecy? Well, let's get an answer from Daniel 9, verse 25. Daniel 9, verse 25 tells us, Know therefore and understand that from, this is when it would start, from the going forth of the commandment or the decree to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. From the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. What happened to Jerusalem? It had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so now Daniel is a captive in a foreign country. And the angel tells Daniel, when the decree goes out that you can restore and rebuild your city, that's the starting date. Can you tell us, son, what was that date? 
Well, that day was 457 B.C., towards the last part of the year. And you can read an actual decree, the actual decree from Ezra 7, 11 through 26. This is confirmed also in the encyclopedia under the year 457 B.C. You read this. Artaxerxes I decrees that the city government of Jerusalem shall be reestablished, see Ezra 7, Daniel 9, and Nehemiah 1 in the Old Testament. So we have? We have our starting date, 457 B.C. And from that, we would count off 490 years for the Jews. And during that time, Messiah would come. Let's read again, verse 25. It says, from the going forth of the commandment or the decree. What was that date? 457 B.C. in the latter part of the year. From that decree to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah shall be seven weeks and three score in two weeks. A score is 20. Three score would be 60. Three score in two, 62. Seven plus 62 is? That's too easy. 69 weeks. 69 weeks is 483 days or? We're studying prophecy. 483 years would bring us down unto the Messiah. You remember this prophecy? We studied about this when we talked about the Omega the other night. Here we have 457. That would be our starting date. 483 years, 69 weeks, brings you to the Messiah. And that would leave us with one more week or seven years in this prophecy for the Jews. And you can see where it fits right there. 483 years after the decree, what happened? You come down to Messiah. 27 AD, Messiah was baptized. Now, just in review, we saw that mathematically you go from minus one to zero to plus one. Did they have a zero year in history? No, they went from one BC to AD one. No zero year. You have to remember that. A full 483 years brings you from 457 to 27 A.D. That's when the Messiah was baptized. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. We saw he began to rule in 12 A.D. His 15th year would be 15 plus 12, 27 A.D. What was happening at that time? Well, let's read Luke 3, verses 1 and 3. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, John the Baptist came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. What year? Seven. Yeah, the 15th year. But what year was that? That was 27 AD. John the Baptist was baptizing. And who came to be baptized? Jesus. We saw that Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. Christ in Greek means anointed one. Acts 10.38 said that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. When did he do that? Baptism. At his baptism. Luke 3.21 and 22. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What year? 27 A.D. 
Jesus began to preach. As soon as he was baptized and began his public ministry, he preached saying, the time is fulfilled. What time was fulfilled? The time prophecy of Daniel 9. He came right on time. Here we have our diagram. You have this in your hands tonight if, you've been, if you're a registered participant. We have the 490 years. That's for the Jews, Daniel's people, the 70 weeks. Then we have the 483 years. That's the 69 weeks, which brings us down to Messiah, Messiah's baptism. Then there is one more week here, seven years. In the middle of that period, Jesus died on the cross in the early part of 31 A.D. That was actually foretold in the Bible. Daniel 9, verse 27. It says, and he, who's the he? Jesus. He, Jesus Christ, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. One week is seven days or seven years. And in the middle of the week, the midst of the week, the middle of seven would be yeah. three and a half. He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. What happened when Jesus died on the cross? When Christ died on the cross, a mysterious hand ripped the veil of the temple from top to bottom. Mark 15, verse 38, showing that the earthly sanctuary and its services no longer was significant because now our attention is focused on the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus had fulfilled all the types and symbols. He was the lamb that died for our sins. That's why the Bible said, Daniel 9, 27, he would confirm a covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week, middle of seven, three and a half years after he was anointed, that is, he shall cause the sacrifice in the oblation to cease. That brings us to 31 A.D., then if you add another three and a half years, remember there was right in the middle of this seven years, you come down to three and a half more years, we come to 34 A.D. What was happening in 34 A.D.? Stephen was stoned to death in 34 A.D., and the gospel went to the Gentiles. And the encyclopedia confirms this under the date 34 what do we have? Paul and St. Barnabas start preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And Stephen, the first martyr of Christianity, was stoned to death by the Jewish leaders for preaching Jesus was the Christ. What year? 34. 34 A.D. In 34 A.D., according to the prophecies of Daniel, God's covenant with the Jews came to an end. God rejected the Jewish nation because they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Jews can still be saved individually by accepting Jesus, but as a nation, God has rejected them because they rejected Jesus. So here we have our 490-year prophecy. It ended in 34 A.D. That was when the probation for the Jews came to an end. And that is why the Bible tells us in Galatians 3.29, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All the promises made to Abraham and ancient Israel are for you if you are Christ. So if we add, we have our final date, 34 A.D., and if we add 1,810 years to 34 A.D., we come up with 
1844. In 1844, the judgment began in heaven. How do you know that, son? Well, we have our anchor points, our dates. 457, that's the starting date. That's an accurate date. 27 AD, when Christ was baptized, that's also accurate. 31 AD, when Christ was crucified, is an accurate date. And 34 AD, when Stephen was stoned, is also an accurate date. So we can know that just as those four dates were accurate, just so the last date, 1844, is accurate. That's why the Bible tells us in Daniel 8, let me back up here for just a moment. Anyone who discredits 1844 as the date for the judgment is really denying that Jesus is the Messiah of Daniel 9. The whole prophecy either stands together or it all falls apart. If 1844 is not correct, then these dates must also be wrong. And the whole prophecy of Daniel 9 for the Messiah falls apart. In 1844, We have the fulfillment of Daniel 8:14. Daniel 8:14 unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Then shall the judgment begin in heaven. And we saw that if you take the starting date, 457 BC, you add 2300 years, not forgetting that there is no zero year, you will come to 1844. In 1844 the judgment began in heaven. That's why the message is sounding today. Revelation 14:7 Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Started back in 1844. Beginning back then probably with Adam, the first man who ever lived, God has been coming down through time examining the lives of his professed people. Someday he has to reach us. Someday he'll come to your name if you profess to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. He has to. Because when Jesus comes back, he brings rewards for how many people? Every person. So he's going to bring your reward as well. There has to be a judgment then before he comes back. And 10 days before the day of atonement in Israel's time, trumpets sounded to warn the people to get ready and that it really ought to be a lesson for us we live in a solemn hour of earth's history the judgment is happening and you don't know i don't know when our name will be called in heaven and the universe will begin examining the record of our lives now we do want to give you some encouragement tonight As you think about the judgment, you do have a case pending in court, the highest court of the universe. But there's good news. There's a lawyer who offers to take your case. You can read about him in 1 John 2 verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate. What's an advocate? That's a lawyer, an attorney. We have a lawyer with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus. This is a lawyer that's never lost a case. If you'll commit your case to Jesus, he's well able to present you. How will he present you? Well, let's read the answer from Jude 1 verse 24. 
Bible tells us here, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He presents us how? Faultless. Faultless. Anybody here faultless tonight? Well, how can he present us faultless when we are so full of faults? I'll tell you how, son. Jesus paid the penalty for our faults. Because he paid the price, he can forgive us of our mistakes, our sins. But there is a certain order of things here that we would do well to notice. The Bible says, unto him that is able to keep you from falling, number one, and then number two, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Keep you from falling. Keep you from falling into sin. Can God blot out the record of our sins in heaven while we still continue to practice them on earth? Not at all. Oh. He's got to first cleanse this earthly temple, this body temple of sins, before he can cleanse my record there. How can he blot off the sins off the record books there if I'm still practicing those sins here in my life? So before he presents us faultless, he does what? Keeps us from falling. Can he do that? Does he have enough power? You don't have the power. You already know that. You try to resist sin, you have no strength. But does he have strength? With God, all things are possible. There is enough power in God to enable, to keep you from falling. He has the power. You don't. But if you'll commit your life to him... He can keep you from falling. And as he does that, then he presents you how? Faultless. Faultless. I'd like to illustrate this tonight. Let's imagine a name sounds in heaven. And I'll just use myself uh, for the example tonight. So the name sounds out, Lowell Hargraves. And the universe turns its attention to the records of Lowell Hargraves. There's the long catalog of my sins. I wouldn't want you to see it. But it's there. The records are there. And I can imagine maybe there's a moment of silence. I can't excuse myself. I've committed those sins. But then I can imagine that Jesus stands up. And he says, I am here today to represent Lowell Hargraves. Yes, he sinned. But he has confessed those sins to me. And as the universe looks at the record, it sees by each sin, confessed, pardoned. Confessed, pardoned. Confessed, pardoned. And Jesus says, I have been at work in his life. I've been changing his life. I've been transforming him. And the universe can see that. And I can imagine that Jesus says, my blood, Father, I plead my blood on behalf of Lowell Hargraves. If Jesus stands for me there, how will I do? My record, all that forgiven sin, is erased. And in its place is put the perfect character of Jesus. If Jesus stands for me, I remember years ago I was presenting this topic, and I said, if Jesus stands for me there, how will I do in the judgment? 
and there was this elderly woman sitting in the back. And she called back out. She called out to me right in front of everybody. She said, you'll do all right. You'll do all right. Well, how about you, friend? Will you do all right? If Jesus stands for you, you'll do all right. I want Jesus to stand for me, don't you? Tonight, would you like to ask Jesus to be your lawyer, to take your case? How many want to ask him to take your case? May I see your hands? Now, I want to take it one step farther. Would you like to ask Jesus to blot those sins out of your life here, to give you power to stop practicing those sins that you know you need to give up so that he can present you there faultless? How many want to ask him to give you power to stop those sins? May I see your hands tonight? Yes, he will give you power. There is? There is hope for you. The judgment began in 1844. There is hope for you. You, your case, God and angels will explore. There is hope for you. Sin will be blotted out forevermore. There is hope in Christ for you. There is hope for you who on the Son of God depend. There is hope for you. He is your lawyer, judge, and friend. There is hope for you. In judgment, he will your case defend. So there is hope in Christ for you. Yes, friend, for you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.